Hey, Taste Buds, spring training is in full swing. It's time to start thinking Yahoo Fantasy Baseball Drafts. Flex your skills as a real GM. The new weekly lineup format makes it even easier. Use the Set Active Players feature to set your lineup for the week in one tap. Very easy. The Yahoo Fantasy Baseball is the official fantasy game of Major League Baseball. Sign up now at yahoo.com slash fantasy baseball. My Taste Buds Today's show also brought to you by Jules, the sous vide by Chef Steps. My friends, you expect precision from your smart thermostat, your camera, even the drone you may have bought your kids. I hope you didn't buy your kids a drone. So why settle for less when you cook? The Jules sous vide uses precise temperature control and features a trademarked visual doneness guide to cook food exactly the way you want it. Jules, perfect food every time to get yours. Visit chefsteps.com slash Jules and use the code CARBS to get $15 off for a limited time. That's Chef Steps, C-H-E-F-S-T-E-P-S dot com slash Joule, J-O-U-L-E, code CARBS. Podcast Pals, two great things going on right now on The Ringer at TheRinger.com. Please check out Andrew Gutadaro's wonderful story on Bill Hader this past weekend's outstanding host of Saturday Night Live. This is about Bill and HBO and his new show on HBO, Barry, also on the Ringer Podcast Network. New edition of the Press Box on Channel 33 with Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker. Another great listen from those guys. Check it out. All right, my taste buds, my Hungry homies, my culinary comrades, welcome to another edition of House of Carbs, the food podcast for the hungry people, by the hungry people. I am your hungry host, Joe House. This is part of the Ringer Podcast Network. My friends, this week, we were very, very lucky to track down Northern Thai food specialist, Thai food extraordinaire, Andy Ricker, just back from his most recent visit to Thailand. It's not necessarily like every time I'm going there to explore, but things kind of do come along. And of course, we also have this week Food News with Juliet Littman. We probably OD'd a little bit on White Castle. Most people go to White Castle for a burger and fries, but police say one customer at the fast food restaurant in Hobart, Indiana, was cooking up something completely different. My friends, a new segment here on House of Cards. We're going to try each week, so many of you hungry homies, with the outstanding input on the Instagram and on the Twitter, ask for recommendations, ask for referrals. A new short segment here on House of Carbs. The best thing I ate this week to provide inspiration, hopefully, and a little bit of indication as to where my belly is at, my friends. I was very lucky this week to get down to St. Simon's Island, Georgia. I was in the beautiful south in search of warmer climbs because I was doing a little bit of golf And I was very fortunate down there in St. Simons to encounter Southern Soul Barbecue. My friends, this place is legit. This is a tiny barbecue joint in a converted 1940s gas station a mile away from the beach. It's been around for about 10 years. They have earned their loyal following and... It's a big menu that basically features local Georgia style. So lots of smoky pulled pork and as well as a delicious uh, tangy Brunswick stew. Plenty of ribs, brisket, smoked chicken wings. I went for the Southern Soul three meat sampler. Yes, pulled pork. Yes, beef brisket. Yes, whole smoked chicken. I couldn't get the ribs. We got there too late for the ribs. 
but I will tell you, they the meat comes perfectly seasoned, and I love the variety of uh, textures and flavors. Authentic Southern barbecue. I was also able to dabble a little bit. They try and accommodate tastes from from all over the South. They had a nice Carolina-inspired uh, barbecue sauce that I would dabble a little bit, as well as some 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 versions of the Georgia Soul, a little hot, a little sweet. Those are two different varieties. This was the best thing I ate this week. The barbecue at Southern Soul on St. Simon's Island, Georgia. If you're down there, go do it to it. And now, let's get into that belly with Andy Ricker. All right, my taste buds. We feel extremely lucky to have today's guest on House of Carbs, not only because of the considerable acclaim and the list of awards that he has accumulated, two times James Beard award winner, both for his cooking and his writing, Michelin-starred restaurant, uh, a mini empire that spans both coasts of these great United States of ours. But also, speaking of these United States, today's guest, does not necessarily spend all 12 months here in our country. He's a known traveler, has established over many, many, many years a wander lust. Of course, it's 2018, so the best way to introduce him, I think, is his Twitter bio, which reads, owner chef of Pock Pock Enterprises, man of words, charcoal purveyor, vinegar pimp, friend of felines, Chef Andy Ricker, Welcome to House of Carbs. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. So let's start with where you're physically located right this second. I'm in a uh, I'm in a little dark booth. Uh, it appears to be uh, foam on the walls and some uh, some little LED lights pointing down at me. Um, this sounds like. Yeah. We, we now we're not responsible for putting you in the the asylum. It sounds like an <laughs> asylum. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm in Portland, Oregon at the moment. Ah, very good, very good. So, um, if you don't mind starting at the beginning, how does a white guy from Vermont become one of the greatest ambassadors of Southeast Asian cooking here in these United States? Well, it, it wasn't on purpose, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> And if if that is true, um, I mean, it just really, uh, as with many uh, good things that happen to people in their life, it, it came from traveling. Um, when I was uh, quite young, in my early twenties, late teens, I was living in uh, Vail, Colorado, and then California, Southern California, in L.A. And I had a I had a really good friend there, Swedish guy, um, Pella, who who kind of said, you know, why don't you come traveling with me? We'll go to, we'll go to Europe and, you know, you can come visit me in Sweden, hang out with me and stuff. And, uh, it sounded great. And he said, well, I'm going to go to LA and work for a while to save some money about six months. And then I'm leaving. And I was like, great, I'll go to LA and work too. So I showed up in LA and, you know, then he bailed out. I think he met a woman or something happened. He decided not to travel. And then I think it was the Lockerbie bombing happened, and all of a sudden it was you know their the State Department was saying don't travel to Europe. This is in the in the late eighties, mid eighties, mid eighties, yeah. And uh, so I started you know by that time I decided I wanted to travel, and it was it wasn't like uh, you know it, I just wanted to travel. I didn't care. I've been building myself up for it for a couple of years, so I decided to go to Australia, New Zealand, and. Um, and then back, and that turned, I, I did that, and it turned into what was supposed to be about a three- or four-month trip or maybe a six-month trip turned into almost four years away. And um, you know, during, during that time I, I did, I, went, I lived in Australia and I lived in New Zealand and I was working and then I, I ended up in Thailand for a while. And, um, and then and I was also in England for a while. I ended up back in the United States, and I couldn't shake like that, that the experience that I'd had in Southeast Asia, even though the first time I went, I was, you know, I was just a dumb, dumb kid, like running around trying to find the next party and, um, hanging out on the beach and stuff like that. There wasn't any kind of like, I wasn't there for the food really. Uh, food was great, but I wasn't there for the food. 
Um, and it, it, a few years later, in 1992, a good good friend of mine who I grew up with, um, you know, I came back in contact with him, and he was living in Thailand. He'd married a woman that he met at the university there. She was a teacher. He was a teacher. And uh, they were in Chiang Mai. And he said, why don't you come and visit me here? And so I did. And that was the beginning of, you know, this whole thing that, that's, that's ended up happening. It, it had to do with me showing up at, at, you know, kind of the right time and in the right mindset and being shown things that I wouldn't have been able to find myself um, by, by my friends who were there. So that, that's, that's the beginning of it, right? It's just that, that sort of yeah. traveling bit. We know um, in terms of like the origin story, there's cooking in your, in your DNA, um, born and raised at least for a while in, in Vermont. And your mom was uh, a local chef of, of some acclaim. Is that right? Well, my mom uh, had always, uh, you know, she, she had done a fair few different things in her life. Um, and one of them was that she was, she was a cook. And, and um, you know, we, we lived a pretty simple life there in Vermont and, you know, we didn't, we didn't have much money. So, you know, my stepdad was a teacher and my mom would work, uh, she was with state park naturalist for a while. And then, then she got a gig as a cook at the local place. Um, and, uh, so, but, but, you know, because we were more of the early cooking stuff came from the fact that we didn't really go out to restaurants ever. We didn't have any, we didn't have enough money to do that. So we, you know, we cook at home all the time and, Really, uh, the reason I started learning how to cook was because I hated doing dishes. And the choice was, look, you know, if you, you, you don't want to take a turn cooking, then you have to wash dishes more. <laughs> so I was like, fuck it, fuck it, I'll just cook. <laughs> so that's how I started cooking. It was, it was less to do with my mom being a professional cook than the fact that we just, you know, that cooking was just part of life. So between, you know, that sort of time in, in Vermont, those formative years where you were, you know, introduced as part of your sort of upbringing uh, to sort of local cuisine and, and, you know, the approach that your mom had. And then, you know, sort of taking in your traveling experiences at what moment along the way did cooking sort of resurface for you? as a thing that perhaps could be, be like a career? Well, it never went away, really. I mean, the thing, thing is that I, you know, I left, I, my first job I ever had was, I think I was a dishwasher. Was that right? I had a dishwashing job at a, at a uh, fondue restaurant in Vermont. And then I had a job as a, a banquet waiter, busboy type deal at the, at the um, uh, ski resort in the town I lived in. And then, then when I left home, I went out to Vail, Colorado. And so the only work experience I'd had would, was in restaurants. And my choice was like, well, you get a job as a busboy, you can get a job as a cook. And, you know, it was, you know, if you, if you took the job as a busboy, it was a lot cleaner. You know, the money was probably about the same as being a cook, but it was a lot cleaner and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But if you were a cook, you would get a ski pass for free because they knew what a shitty job it was. And, they, you know, it was, they had to do something to keep you around. So... I chose to cook and, um, you know, that's, that's what I did the whole time, you know, pretty much for most of my life, except for a few brief, uh, sort of like, uh, respite where I, where I went and did something else for a while. I've, I've always been involved in cooking or restaurants. Uh, the point in time where I, I realized this is something that I could do and, and kind of make a living that probably didn't come until about like my third year, second, second year in Vail, maybe something like that. Second where I was like, Hey, I'm actually pretty decent at that. And I, you know, I had a, had one of those experiences that, um, you know, I was okay. I was working at this Northern Italian place. And I just remember, uh, there's a story attached to it, which was that, um, I was a line cook, right. And I wasn't very good at it. I was kind of crappy and the, the chef and the sous chef would get on my ass about it. And I was trying, but I wasn't that great. And I remember, uh, there was, there's a girl involved in this, I, like Vail, Colorado in the, in the early eighties, the ratio of, of, um, you know, people who live, the ratio of, of available young women and, uh, the rate to, to the, the young men was, was inversely proportional. So I, you know, I just, I, I didn't had much luck with the ladies <laughs> for some reason. There was this one girl who, who seemed to be interested and, 
I was interested in her and she announced that she was leaving to go away and like I wouldn't be able to see her again. So my one chance was this one night. But I was working. So I totally lied to the chef and said that I was sick and so that I could see this girl. And I very see I don't know if you've ever been to Vail, Colorado, but at that time it was basically there was a street called Bridge Street, and it's the only main street through the center of the village, and everything is on it. <laughs> and I very unwisely, like, A, she lived on Bridge Street. I love where this story's going. B, I love where this is going. <laughs> B, we went to, to the bar <laughs> that, we, that I always yeah. went to and that all the other people went to as well. And of course, of uh, course, you know, the sous chef walked in. There I was, you know, <laughs> dancing or drinking beer or something. And he's like, and he read me the riot act. He was just like, look, man, do you know, do you understand that when you call in like this, that somebody has to cover you and that, that you basically screwed over the team tonight and then I find you here? And I, I was just like, gulp, and I ran out of there. And of course, I went into work the next day and the chef was waiting for me. He just, he just kind of gave me a come to Buddha chat. And it was the weirdest thing that that very night. It was kind of like, you know, this is pre-Matrix, but it was like the Matrix. I started to see the shapes. Yeah, I could I could I could finally understand what was going on behind the line and it was, you know, how Neo starts dodging the bullets. That's how it started feeling to me when I was behind the line. I was able to control everything. And um that was a turning point. That's when I realized, "Hey, actually I can I can do this and I can have um I can at least make a living doing this wherever and whenever. So from that spark in Vail, from that, you know, uh, epiphany moment, when and and sort of how did Thailand become a focus? Okay, so that that plays into the whole, so I, you know, I, I was I was in a Vail and I left there and that, that whole thing about traveling to, um, you know, to, to from L.A. Uh, to to. Australia, New Zealand and stuff. That happened in about 85, I think, 85 or 86 maybe. Um, and then I, you know, I did that, that whole thing and I ended up back in the States and then I went back in 19, I had moved to Portland, right? And I was cooking there and I moved to Portland in 1990 after doing all this traveling and making a short, short stop back in Vail. Um, I ended up in Portland and I was cooking there for a couple of years and uh, in 1992, that's when um, that whole trip to Thailand went down where I met my old friend and, and got introduced to the local food. So that was the beginning of it right there. And then I just started going back year after year, um, learning about the food, uh, learning from friends of Locke and Chris, uh, learning by going to the market, trying to teach myself the language, all that kind of stuff. And it took a long time. You know, it was, about, it was from that time until... So that was 1992 until the first Pock Pock opened in 2005. So that was 13 years of, of kind of going back again and again and again. And and it's been an additional 13 years since you opened Pock Pock and you continue to go back again and again and again. Yeah. Um, it has this, this sort of endless quest um, feel to it just as an outsider looking in. Uh, you know, you have accomplished quite a bit in terms of, you know, your your acclaim in the in the U.S. and your ability to kind of spread the word both um, in Portland, also in New York. So, what what in particular about that Northern Thai? Because the the thing that's kind of you know curious to me as a you know new person to 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 your world um, and what the Pak Pak Empire is kind of all about. I hope you don't mind me calling it empire. That's right. <laughs> um, is. Is is you know uh, northern Thai cuisine in two thousand and five could almost it's almost like cuisine from Mars in 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 the sense that like the U S palate um, had never th- heard about it thought about it the U S palate you know understood Thai Thai to be uh, Thai food Thai cuisine to be pad Thai and some of your right down the middle drunken noodle dishes and and curries. What why like northern Thai for you so far ahead of the curve? Well, first of all, I'd like to point out that there's a there's an awful lot of Thai people here in in America that would disagree with you about that. 
Oh, um, good. Good. I'm happy to I mean, hear there's, that. There's, there's a, there's a, you know, in LA in particular, there's a, a huge diaspora of, of uh, Thai people that live there and, and a lot of them come from the North. Um, so it wasn't that it wasn't here at all. And some, and some of those folks were, you know, uh, making and selling it in their restaurants back then. It's just that, you know, there wasn't a broad market for it and there wasn't, you know, the broad population hadn't really embraced this idea of not, not just Northern Thai food, but the idea that there was any kind of regional cuisine in Thailand at all. And that's still a bit of a struggle trying to get people to understand that. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, uh, um, my, what, what would happen is I would go there and I'd go, wow, this food's incredible. And I'd come back, you know, at first, you know, I'd, I'd come back and I'd go, great, I'm going to go and try to find this food at, at the restaurants here because, you know, I, I hadn't really, you know, I wasn't somebody who just went to Thai restaurants all the time before I started traveling there. I'd been, but it wasn't like a big obsession of mine. So the first, you know, after 92, I was like, I'm going to go back and eat this shit when I get back to the States. And it, the stuff that I was looking for just wasn't there in the places I was going. That's the point I was trying to make I, in my yeah. inartful <laughs> phrasing of it. But that's the point I was trying to make. Right. It wasn't broad. Now, to be, to be fair, I wasn't living in L.A. And I wasn't like going to every Thai restaurant in northern Thai, in, in, in Southern California. So, you know, it, it probably was there. And in fact, I found out later on that it was. It's just that it wasn't easy to find. Um, so, you know, that my, it, at the very least, it was not broadly known. So, uh, and, and I, you know, for me, I, I was like, why wouldn't there be cow soy on the menu? I mean, this is just like exactly what honky's like, you know, it's coconut cream and chicken noodles and stuff, all kind of in one bowl. Um, but, uh, you know, it, I just saw this, this gap. And also I, I, I wanted to eat that food when I was here. Cause I wasn't at that time, I wasn't able to spend that much time there. I'd go for two months and that was it for the year. Right. And then I'd have to wait. I'd have to go through another painting season to make enough money to leave again. So, uh, you know, sort of fast forward to that 2005 time frame. You're you're in Portland. Portland has sort of struck me. Now I'm an East Coaster. I'm I'm physically in Washington D.C. right now. Grew up in the greater D.C. Maryland Virginia area, um, and you know that that's my orientation from this side of the world. When I think about Portland it's felt like a food pioneer for a long time. I mean, it was way out ahead of the rest of the, the, the states in terms of the food truck concept um, and in terms of, you know, just, just sort of basically uh, a food first, you know, sort of no pretension, do it your way style of, of food. I You know, now farm to table is a cliche, but I, I think that kind of started in, in, in Portland um, was, is that your experience? Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I've lived through two, you know, major Portland sort of like, uh, events, I guess you could call it. The first one was the music scene that happened, you know, in the, in the early nineties. Um, you know, I was playing in bands and stuff and we watched, you know, the whole, you know, sub pop grunge thing explode and bands, you know, people that I knew were in bands that were getting signed by Sony. And, you know, it was, it was like, there was a real kind of pioneering vibe in the Pacific Northwest and it, it gave birth to a whole genre. It gave birth to some of the most famous bands in the world. And, you know, it was, it, it was all happening in Portland and, and Seattle and, you know, in between. So I saw that come and go. And then I, then I was present for the whole food revolution thing that happened too. So it's been, and there's, you know, there's some crossover there. There's some people that have been involved in both of those uh, things. And um, yeah, I mean, it definitely, you don't, I mean, in those days, the, the internet wasn't like that big of a deal. There wasn't Twitter and all that kind of, there's not the immediacy of, of, uh, of the way things happen here. So like right now, if some, small city in the Midwest were suddenly to, to have a food scene, you'd know about it like right away. And if you're in it, you would know it right away because you're, you're self-conscious. But what was happening here was there were all these different people were all kind of doing their thing kind of independently. And then all of a sudden it was something, right? That's, that's kind of, uh, that's what it was like. You, know, you, 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 you put your head down, you start doing your thing, you look up and there's a bunch of other people doing their thing and you're not thinking of it as a movement. You're just kind of thinking of it as a whole bunch of people doing their thing, right? Um, 
so it was a very organic thing that happened here. It wasn't, it wasn't like, Hey, we've got all this stuff. Let's have a round table. It's all open, cool restaurants. <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't really part of that either. I wasn't part of the whole like farm to table deal that I was, I was dealing with product that I had to, you know, was getting shipped the closest place to where we were getting stuff, you know, at least in the winter would be Mexico, you know, because you can't make a, you know, they can't grow green papayas in in the Pacific Northwest. Right. Right. Uh, And, you know, just to sort of properly emphasize the point about, you know, you having your vision about how you wanted to do your thing. Tell us a story about how Pac Pac physically came to be. Right. So, you know, basically I had been a painting contractor for about eight and a half, nine years, something like that. And I, I was sick of it. I just couldn't, I couldn't keep on doing it. Um, I'd done well enough that I'd, I'd been able to afford to buy a house and kind of fix it up and I'd gotten some equity in it. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I went on this one last long trip because I, you know, like a four month trip. And I knew that I knew that I was going to come back and, finally open a restaurant after thinking about it for, you know, 15 or 12 or 15 years or whatever it was. I was like, I'm going to pull a trigger. I'm going to do this. But I also knew that I couldn't do it the way that most people go about doing it, which is to go and find a space, lease it and, you know, build it out and blah, blah. I just didn't have enough money, you know, to do it that way. But what I figured was that I could turn my mortgage over, get enough money for a down payment on a a house that had a restaurant space in it already. That was my ideal. And I would be able that I could kind of fix it up enough to get going and then generate enough money from that to pay the mortgage. (laughs) That was my Fakakta plan. And it worked. (laughs) It worked. Um, So I found that, you know, I found where PocPoc is now. And it it was, you know, it it was, uh, they had this, this, rinky-dink, weird, busted-ass, but grandfathered-in commercial kitchen in the basement. And then they had, like, this little shack on the side that was basically just a tool shed uh, with electricity in it. They were, like, making sushi in the the kitchen and then putting it into a refrigerator in the shack and selling it. That was basically it. Um, So it, it, you know, it was in the neighborhood that I'd lived in for forever. And, uh, you know, it it was just... It was exactly what I was looking for, and it just happened to come on the market. It was a little more expensive than I wanted it to be, um, but, you know, it, it turned out to be a good investment. All right, Hungry Homies, nice word from our friends at Lisa, who are driven by the mission to provide a better place to sleep for everybody. Lisa is an innovative direct-to-consumer. That's you. That's me online mattress brand that's also socially conscious. I love this. For every 10 mattresses that Lisa sells, they donate one to a shelter through their 110 program. They plant a tree for every mattress sold and donate 1% of each of their employees' time to volunteer for local causes. How about the mattress itself? It, It offers you a patented, universal, adaptive feel designed for all types of sleepers and lisa features three premium foam layers including the two inch avena foam top layer for cooling and breathability two inch memory foam middle layer for body contouring and pressure relief and the six inch base the dense core support foam for durability and structure which works for sleepers of all sizes. And now Lisa is continuing to expand its offerings to include the Lisa pillow, the Lisa blanket, the Lisa foundation, the Lisa frame. No wonder it is a Forbes top 20 startup to watch. My friends, try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights. That's a lot of nights. It's nearly a third of a year. Risk-free. Lisa mattresses are available in the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Germany online with free shipping. And this is a 100% American-made mattress that ships in a com- in a compressed box situation right to your door. Or if you want to try one out ahead of time, get yourself to the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City, or Virginia Beach, or just check out any one of 80 West Elm stores nationwide. 
Here's the deal, my hungry homies. Get $125 off. That is a lot of money off. $125 off and a free pillow when you go to lisa.com slash carbs. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash carbs. If you're in the market for a bed, take advantage of this. You get $125 off and a free pillow, and they ship it right to your front door. L-E-E-S-A dot com slash carbs. So, Andy, from, from your perspective, has the perception of Thai food in America changed since you opened Pock Pock back in, in 2005? I would say yes. I don't know that there's a direct cause and effect of the Pock Pock being open and that being true. I think that um, the internet has opened up people to information. I think that the rise of entertainment TV, uh, people who watch people like Anthony Bourdain or Andrew Zimmern or that, those type of people traveling around the world eating food, uh, you know, the all you know youtube being more popular form of people watching video than cable tv it's just there's there's so much information available out there and you know our population has has changed uh, you know from demographic standpoint and it's not just thai food but all kinds of foods from from different cultures are much more uh accessible now or you can you can ac- you can get access to them much more easily i'd like to think that you know the existence of Pock Pock has added to the conversation in some sort of way. And I hope that, you know, through stuff like this and through uh, the books that I've written and through appearances I make that I, I always try to do my best to kind of just kind of go, Hey, look, you know, uh, Thai food's more than, than uh, just what you've maybe been used to seeing. It's, it's a real great cuisine and here's why, you know, I'm interested in, Whiskey Soda Lounge. Is the Whiskey Soda in Portland the primary place for drinking vinegars? No, it's the primary place for drinking food. So the the book that I just put out, shameless plug, called yes. The Drinking Food of Thailand. No, no, this is, <laughs> I, I was wanting to get there. Um, you know, the, the way that the Whiskey Soda Lounge came about was that, you know, Pock Pock was getting busier and busier. And we had two problems. One problem was that we didn't have anywhere for people to wait to get into Pock Pock because we needed every single seat in the place to, to, to seat people. Uh, so we were sending people across the street to a bar that was there, and we kind of had like a little handshake deal with them that they'd hold on to them, and they'd, you know, they could sell some beers to whoever was there, and then they'd send it back over. And that kind of was going south. They weren't sending people back, and it was hard to get them to answer the phone and stuff like that. So we had that problem. We needed a place to put people who were waiting. The second problem was... We were running out of space to prepare the food in, in Pock Pock. We were just, you know, it was getting too crazy. We didn't have enough walk-in cooler room. We didn't have enough room to prep. We didn't have enough stove space to cook everything we wanted to cook. It was just crazy, you know. So, so I had to have a commissary, and I had to have a place to hold people. And the third thing was, which was kind of icing on the cake, was that there's all this genre of food that I've been eating in Thailand they really didn't work that well on the Pock Pock menu, like little drinking snacks and stuff like that. Um, and I wanted a, a, an avenue to sell those things. So all those things kind of, you know, were fomenting away in my brain. And, and then suddenly um, this globe slicer, slicing, you know, like meat slicer shop that, that, that like did repaired meat slicers uh, came up for a rent. So I went and talked to the owners directly across the street from Pock Pock. So... You know, that's, that's how Whiskey Soda Lounge came about, was like it, it killed, you know, three birds with one stone. So how about um, the, the drinking vinegars? How did, how did that come to be? The drinking vinegars came about because uh, in the early days when I was first opening Pock Pock, and we were getting ready to open, so the shack opened first, and we were just selling, like we had an eight-item menu, we were selling out of the shack for about a year. And during that time, I was also, you know, remodeling the, the main house that Pock Pock is in, uh, to have a kitchen upstairs and a dining room downstairs and all that kind of stuff. And that's a whole nother long story, uh, trials and tribulations. But, you know, during that time, I knew that when we, when we expanded into the house and we, you know, had an actual place where I could have a liquor license and tables that people could sit at and all that, you know, a big kitchen with a big menu, 
you know, I wanted to do some sort of um, drinks program that was unique, that fit the food. And because, you know, because Thailand doesn't really have a cocktail culture, or it didn't, and whatever it has now is basically imported from the West, uh, you know, that I was looking for ways that, for stuff that wasn't just beer, right? Um, or just whiskey with soda water. And so well, I was going spending a lot of time in Asian markets at the time because we didn't have a proper purveyor yet to bring us everything we needed. So I was still spending tons of time in the, in the Asian markets. And I started seeing this thing called a, a health vinegar or drinking vinegar. And, I, you know, I was intrigued. And so I bought some and took it back to the restaurant, tasted it, and went, holy crap, this is actually perfect for this food. It's tart. It's sweet. You add soda water to it, so it's kind of effervescent. And uh, it's it's got really unique flavors, the fruity flavors that, that work really well with this food. So why don't we why don't we use it? And then I was like, well, why don't we use it as a, a booze mixer as well? So you know that's and that's so at first for the first year and a half or two years we were we were just buying the stuff. Um, you know during that time there's a guy named Toby Cicchini. I don't know if you're aware of him. He's a bartender. Uh, from New York City, whose claim to fame is that he invented the Cosmo. He uh, he wrote an article for the New York Times. Also, right, he wrote a New York an article for the New York Times called "Dropping Acid," and he wrote it after he'd been to Pockbock in Portland while he was visiting friends, and he'd had our drink. He'd had drinking vinegar, and he said, "You know, this reminds me of this whole, you know, colonial thing, the shrub." Um, and I was like, "Oh yeah, <laughs> I remember my mom telling me about that mm-hmm. years ago." But I hadn't made the connection in my head yet. And, um, you know, so we just started to, we, we ran into supply problems with the, the you know, the store-bought drinking vinegar, decided to try to make it ourselves, uh, blah de blah blah decided, you know, tried to, to, to ferment it naturally. It was inconsistent. And then, you know, I, that article came out, and I was like, well, why don't we just approach this the way that people made shrubs, which is to macerate the fruit and the vinegar, the sugar and then you know you kind of cook it and then uh you've got it and so we tried that and it turned out to be a really really efficient way of making it made it for ourselves for a long time got to a place where people were coming in and asking us about it so we started selling some of it to our customers and then decided to to start a company to make it to market it more broadly and that's that's how that all happened your vinegars are so widely available now is it possible to walk into a Walmart and find some. I don't think we're at, at Walmart yet, but, <laughs> I, you know, it's it's remarkably well distributed. Um, and, uh, it, you know, I, I get friends all the time who will, like, send me a photo. Hey, I'm in Japan. Here's your stuff. Or, hey, I'm here in, in Milwaukee. And I saw your stuff on the shelf. Well, I was going to say, will you be mad if I go into Walmart and take a picture of it in Walmart and send it to I, you? No. If it's in Walmart, I'm stoked. I want to know about that, you know? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Uh, that's outstanding. Um, sort of last thing. So I know that we've caught you um, on the back of one of your um, re- recent trips, I, I think. Uh, how recent was your, your most recent trip to Thailand? I just got back about a week ago. That's what I thought. I, I thought I had that right. So... Um, you have a reputation from each of these trips. When you come back, things start appearing on the menus of the restaurants and, and, and at the bar and otherwise. Um, can we share with the hungry homies out there maybe something that they're going to see in the next sort of handful of months coming up um, based on your most recent trip? Sure. I mean, it, it, the thing is that sometimes it's not just one visit. I mean, I live there, right? I have a house there. Um, my girlfriend's there. I've got three cats and it's like, it's like having a life there. So it's not necessarily like every time I'm going there to explore, but things kind of do come along. And often what happens is that I'll, I'll basically, um, I'll find something and then I'll go back and try it. I'll take the, the slow sort of, uh, trip to get to to get to something good. I might have to cook it a bunch of times, or I might have to think about it for a while and get back to it. Um, so there's this one dish that that I've been getting at this place called Lap Gai Santitam, which is a, a chicken lab place in in Chiang Mai. 
in a neighborhood called Santi Tom. And it's just like a solid go-to neighborhood lob, lob joint, but it's very good. And you know, the food there, the guy mm-hmm. who cooks there is very, very good. And he has this one dish that's uh, it's called Sikong Mu Taught to Cry, which is um, pork ribs fried with lemongrass. And his recipe is a very, very closely guarded secret. He just, you know, he's actually, you know, we've asked him what, what's he's like, I don't think I'm telling anybody because he, he, you know, he's, he's paranoid about people stealing his, his recipe. So <laughs> the best I can do is just kind of guess more or less. And it's not, it's not that nobody else does that dish. It's just that he does a really nice version of it. And, you know, whenever I try that, I want to try to get something that's in the, that wheelhouse as far as like, it's not going to taste exactly the same. But I want to get a result that is as good as that in flavor. So, you know, I went home and I, I played with this recipe for a long time. It took me, you know, I'd, I'd had probably like a half dozen runs at it before I got somewhere where I thought it was going to work. And I finally, you know, towards the end of it, I, I had something that I think is workable. Now we just have to figure out how to replicate it in a restaurant. You know, there's a big difference between you know, cooking two pounds of ribs at home for your friends and cooking 20 orders a night over a sp- spaced over a period of eight, eight to 10 hours, right? You have to have a way to, and that's a, what a lot of the creativity in the restaurants has to do with is figuring out how do we reproduce something that is made, you know, to order or in, in you know, a certain way there where there's no health code or anything like that. Um, and how do we do it in a modern restaurant? So right now, you know, I've, I, we want to do it. Uh, there's already too many pork products on the menu, so I have to figure out where to put it and when, but it'll show up eventually. Yeah, but the, there, there aren't ribs on the menu yet, are there? Oh, yeah. We've, we've got ribs all over the menu right now. Just kind of changes. Oh, my gosh. Know? Yeah. Okay, so that this is why I, I'm overdue for uh, a trip to Brooklyn. Well, I'm really overdue for a trip to Portland because I haven't been – in six or seven years, um, mm-hmm. which is basically a lifetime, but I'm going to make it to Brooklyn before I make it to Portland next. So I'm going to have to get up there. If I if I uh, was going to you know try to get up um, and have it coincide with when this particular dish might arrive on the menu, is it is it four months out? Is it six months out? Uh, you have to look into your magic ball and kind of make a prediction. I don't. I can't tell you. <laughs> I love it. Well, I just have to go to the restaurant repeatedly. Is the basic That's answer. It, yeah. That's easy. Or, or you can watch out. You can follow uh, social media, Paul Krua, uh, Instagram and Twitter. And I, when when we announce a new dish, I always fire something off. Also, the Pock Pock PDX uh, counts. We'll we'll have it. You're about to be a follow, so look out. The house from DC is going to be following you, and I'll just keep my eye out for when the when the ribs uh, hit the menu, and then I'll there be at go. the front door trying to barge my way ahead of the line. Right on, man. All right, a little bit off the wall, brother Ricker. What is your favorite dish to cook that is not Thai? Favorite dish to cook that isn't Thai. Um, yeah, these are the kind of questions that I really suck at because it, it really kind of depends on what it is that I like that I'm into at the moment. Um, I don't know. I, I guess uh, what is it that I end up cooking most often at home is almost always something from that sort of canon from the Thai, Thai style stuff. But um, I guess I really, I, I like making uh, really simple food that's that has mostly vegetables in it. So like uh, I go through phases, right? I, I went through a phase for a long time where I, I would cook up a giant pot of collard greens and that's what I'd eat for a week. And, um, you know, be, and occasionally I'll have the opportunity to cook, uh, you know, for friends who want in Thailand who want Western food. Right. So, <laughs> um, I guess the thing that I, that I do the most often that I really enjoy doing is just salad, man. Cause I, I, you know, when I'm, that's the one thing that doesn't really have a, a straight corollary and, and there, there's no exact thing or, or similar thing in Thai cooking than just a, a salad of greens with a with kind of a vinegary dressing on it. <laughs> Andy, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We greatly appreciate your time, your generosity, especially uh, having been back here for only about a, a week. Um, and, and I can't wait to get up there and try those ribs. All right. Thanks for having me.
My taste buds, quick break to tell you about our pals at Sun Basket. Can healthy be delicious? Question mark. Well, of course, with Sun Basket, the answer is yes. Forget protein shaking and flavorless diet food and just start cooking fresh, healthy meals with delicious organic produce with Sun Basket. Sun Basket makes it easy and convenient to cook healthy, delicious meals at home, no matter how much experience you have in the kitchen. Just go to the Sun Basket app and pick from 18 weekly recipes. That's a lot of choice. Like steaks, oh my gosh, with chimichurri and harissa roasted sweet potatoes. Do not sleep on harissa. That's my 2018 flavoring of the year, the delicious harissa. There are paleo, gluten-free, lean and clean, vegan, Mediterranean, family options, and more. Sun Basket works with the best farms and suppliers to bring you fresh, organic produce and responsibly raise meats and seafood. And the best part, Sun Basket is delivered in perfect portions with reliable nutrition information and it's ready to whip up in about 30 minutes. I can attest to all of this. The perfect portions, the nutrition information, the 30 minutes. If I can handle it, you can handle it. There's something for every healthy journey and lifestyle. Go to sunbasket.com slash carbs today to learn more and get $30, wait, hold on, $35 off your first order. That's sunbasket.com slash carbs for $35 off. That's a lot of money off of this. Sunbasket.com slash carbs. Do it. All right, my taste buds. Quick break to talk about our pals at SeatGeek. Buying tickets, you know, can be complicated and confusing, but there's a simpler way to buy, and that is with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're catching your favorite musician on tour, shopping for the perfect gift, or searching for a last-minute deal to see your favorite team, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. Nothing beats being there in person for the biggest plays of the year, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket buying experience easier than ever. They save you time and money. They search multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. They pull it all together and let you see the most bang for your buck. They grade every ticket based on value and you look at your little screen on the phone and there are values assigned to this. It's very easy and very helpful. You can immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Every purchase fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make it your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, sports and concerts, comedy and theater, whatever your flavor, SeatGeek has the tickets. Best of all, House of Carbs listeners get 20 bucks off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the app and enter promo code CARBS today. That's promo code C-A-R-B-S for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. SeatGeek, the right seat, right now, right from your phone. All right, Taste Buds, you know how we do it here at House of Carbs. Each and every week, we cover the hottest, most delicious national and international stories relating to the great world of food. It is now time for... Food news. Yo, Juliet. Hi, what's up? What is up? You went on a trip. I went on a trip. We last left you in Austin, Texas. You had one last meal in front of you. I have a sneaking suspicion that this last meal of yours included dips. It did. Am I right? You're correct. It was a meat place called Daijui, but... I ordered the Metsy plate as I want to do. And man, was it delightful. And I also had with it, I, I, first of all, I sat down and I immediately ordered a coffee and they do like an individual French press, which was great. And then I moved mm. on to having a house-made grapefruit soda, which I was delightful. House-made grapefruit soda? Yeah, it's like sparkling water infused with grapefruit. It was really good. I had two. So they clearly did something with some grapefruity ingredients and created a kind of soda deal out of that and then and then 
Okay. I guess I ought not to belabor it. Yeah. Just take you at, at your word. Yeah. Sounds fantastic. Um, can I hit you with some food news? Why don't you? Okay. First up, this is an absurd story that I'm I'm really into, to be honest. Um, there is a restaurant in Maine that is so popular that the only way to get a reservation is to send them snail mail. You need to send a postcard. Here's the deal. The restaurant located in Freedom, Maine, that is called the Lost Kitchen, only accepts postcards. A popular nationally acclaimed restaurant in a small town, Maine, is asking potential diners to participate in a postcard lottery to get a reservation. The Portland Press-Herald reports the Lost Kitchen in Freedom will accept postcards for 2018 reservation requests. Word of mouth magazine mentions in a video that got 2 million views put the 40-seat restaurant in Freedom on the map. Owner Aaron French says the restaurant reflects an old-fashioned Maine style, and thus it will accept reservations from April 1st, April 1st to the 10th for May to October seating. And French says she and her staff will hold a drawing until all seats are claimed. She says the restaurants received 10,000 phone calls in 24 hours from eager prospective diners last year. Isn't that wild? <laughs> so it's funny. I'm kind of laughing. Okay. Um, it reminds me in the first place, and I will track this down. I'm going to botch. All I can do is describe it because I don't have the details in front of me. Sure. Um, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I like it when you, when you spring these stories on me and I haven't, I don't do any prep. So apologies to our listeners. There was a, a, a very recent YouTube clip. I think Vice had its hand in it or Munchies or one of the Vice food properties that featured some enterprising folks who created a fake restaurant in England and thrust it all the way to the very top of TripAdvisor's London restaurant ratings. It became the number one rated restaurant in London, England through the manipulation by these folks. Um, And they created a word of mouth. They created fake reviews. They created a website and a phone number uh, and, you know, we're constantly telling people that no reservations were available. I will track this down. I will push it out. I'm not suggesting in any way, shape, or form that this wonderful restaurant in Maine is fake. <laughs> but the idea in, in 2018 of securing a reservation only by means of a postcard has a kind of beauty to it. Sure. I I really like the democratization. So one of the things that happens here in Washington, D.C., there is we're in a really great restaurant moment where a lot of of enterprising restaurateurs have stumbled upon um, something interesting. There's a lot of experimentation in the D.C. restaurant scene. And there are three or four restaurants in town that don't take reservations, and the only way to get in is by standing in line. Now, here in Washington, D.C., it's not a line-standing kind of town, kind of a power town. You can use TaskRabbit or any variety of other kind of, you know, um, intermediary services to go send somebody to stand in line for you for one of these restaurants. And then when your turn comes up, they reach out to you, and then you can get yourself over there. Um, but this postcard thing makes it impossible to use, to wield power or privilege, it seems, to get yourself in. Am I right? Yeah, abs- absolutely. I, I, one thing about them, it's, it's like quaint and cute and like it seems like it's like an active choice and that it is. But it's also, if you go, like, you know, I look for this video on YouTube, like there, they did get like a lot of coverage and there is like this big Boston Globe article about them. So it's almost like they were, they were thrust into this position, not because of like a certain like um, ethos, but because it's like out of necessity, because there's no other way to like manage all of the uh, reservation requests. I mean, a 40 seat restaurant. Now, here's the thing. Do we know what they serve? Um, it's like seasonal food from Maine, basically. Like, so, you know, farm, farm to table. And I believe, um, it's very vegetable focused. Of course, there's gotta be some lobster, right? I mean, Maine after all. And, um, she, I think also like has a a classical training in, in, uh, in cooking as well. Well, here's the thing. I want to check out this video that got 2 million views, uh, because it, it, it clearly has resonated in such a way to get 10,000 phone calls in 24 hours. I know. 
uh, I mean, that's a that's a pretty good ratio. And, you know, one modest suggestion, if you only have 40 seats Lost Kitchen, maybe you could get 80 seats or 120 so, seats. Maybe, you know. It's in this, this grist mill. So it's also just like the whole thing is very stylized. It's like hard to find it. It's in an old mill. They use the pulleys. It's all it's only staffed by women except for the dishwasher. It's just got a whole a whole thing to it. So it's like an experience. Um, I I am going to look at this video. I'm telling you, the more I listen to this, the more I think about it, I really do feel like it's a prank. <laughs> I really, I don't want to, I don't want to go there, it. right? I'm yeah. really not. The more we talk about it, the more I see this stuff. I, I mean, who can we dispatch to go and physically go take a picture of the brick and mortar? If you can track it down. to see whether or not there's actual food being served inside of this brick and mortar. I'll try to go this summer when I'm in the Boston area. It's not that far from Boston. Okay. That's All my, right. that's my pledge it. to you. I love it. I mean, we, it's investigative journalism is what it is, Juliet. Uh, of course, anything for this podcast. Anything for this podcast. We yeah. will we'll at least pay for your pay for the tolls if there's tolls are <laughs> okay, uh, <thanks>. involved. <laughs> yeah. On the mass pike or something. I, <laughs> yeah. I appreciate it. Um, moving on to far less rarefied air. If you've noticed that your bodega in New York is running out of Cheetos, that's because they are. This is a story that comes from Grub Street by way of the New York Post. And it reads... Corner stores around town are reportedly running out of everything the company makes, that company being Frito-Lay. So Doritos, Cheetos, Fritos, Lays and Ruffles, Rolled Gold Pretzels, Cracker Jacks, and Grandma's Cookies after the Pepsi company subsidiary cut the pay of its delivery drivers by as much as the third, prompting many to quit. The New York Post reports that Frito-Lay has tried spreading remaining drivers through New York as evenly as it can, but bodega owners say that in some cases they've seen nary a Cheetos bag in over three months. I call the distribution center. No one answers when operator tells the paper. Another who owns 33 gourmet delis in Midtown says he's fed up at this point and is just done with them. According to the Post, 35 of 140 drivers have quit Frito-Lay's Brooklyn Depot and 12 of 105 have quit in the Bronx. So this is this is actually a crisis. Um, last time I checked, and I haven't checked the stock price. Maybe I'll take a look and see. Why is Frito-Lay cutting the, the wages of truck drivers? I don't know, man. It's fucked up. Yeah, like I, I like I said, I'll track the, the stock price a little bit here, but I haven't heard of any dramatic decline in uh, interest or consumption of Frito-Lay products. It's, yeah. In fact, my experience is just the opposite. We, on this very show, not, you know, less than three weeks ago, talked about the great inventor of the hot Cheetos yeah, and gave him, you know, seven or eight minutes of love, deserved love. What What's going on here? What, what, I, I understand, you know, we're, we're always looking for efficiencies, but nobody's more vital than these drivers to delivering these crucial goods. Well, that's, I think what just happened is an efficiency because what happened is uh, there was a new like, pay scale, basically. And so um, the pay change affects drivers nationwide. And it apparently consisted of swapping a, quote, more salary-driven, close quote, structure for a commission-based system. And the company claims that the uh, that drivers in the U.S. have an increase in overall compensation. But I just don't know if I buy it. Well, the, 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 it's clearly not the case because these dudes are voting with their feet. I know. These, these uh, uh, men and women who are responsible for delivering in these urban centers clearly are, are uh, have a different point of view as to whether or not there's an increase in overall compensation because, you know, God bless America, they are not delivering those Cheetos any longer. So whatever they've been making so far, whatever the system was for getting these uh, uh, crucial snack goods to the bodegas in, in Manhattan and, and Brooklyn and the Bronx and all around, I think you ought to reconsider Frito-Lay. <laughs> Those people are pretty important to getting the product to the people. It's a huge it's a huge population they could be servicing and just are not now. Pretty dumb. Fucked up. Moving on. We're moving to White Castle. I've got two stories for you. I'm going to start with the darker one first. <laughs> this, <laughs> oh, we, we have a dark and a light. A dark and a light, like two kinds of chicken. Um this is from the Miami Herald. A White Castle customer was caught cooking up some meth in a fast food restaurant. 
Most people go to White Castle for a burger and fries, but police say one customer at the fast food restaurant in Hobart, Indiana, was cooking up something completely different. It was meth. It happened Friday, which means it was last week, when police said they caught one person making methamphetamine in one pot in a one pot meth lab, according to the uh, NWI Times. Uh, a one pot meth lab. <laughs> it's basically just a bottle filled with chemicals that's used to make meth. Some people use Gatorade bottles. Some people use Powerade bottles or any type of soda bottle. The one pot method can be dangerous. Obviously, an inmate in the Sullivan County Jail, identified only as Amber, said that three uh, that three fires in three months when trying to make meth with a one pot. Four officers who responded to the Indiana White Castle just before 11 a.m. had to be treated for chemical exposure. And the cops arrested a man sitting at a booth inside the restaurant. Police say Indiana State Police took the lab to a safe location. So this is a really important note. It wasn't someone who worked for White Castle, which I feel like this whole story implies until about halfway through. It was a customer who went there with his one pot mess, basically. That makes a lot more sense. And I'm glad that it doesn't involve an actual White Castle employee with uh, an addiction problem. You know, trying to f- to satisfy that uh, in connection with those delicious little burgers, um, but still uh, slightly unnerving. I have a question for you. Please do. When's the last time you were in a, in a White Castle? Never. Literally, I've never been. Never in your whole life. No, I've never had White Castle except from like the freezer at the grocery store. So, uh, that, I have had White Castle both physically in person and. Uh, from the freezer in the grocery store. Um, and I don't know when it happened that White Castle um, departed the greater uh, DMV. Um, and I, it might be the case that I experienced White Castle in the Midwest. Um, A great place to have nearest... it, White Castle. I get that. Yes. Yes. I think at this stage of the game, my, my best bet for White Castle is like Philadelphia or New York. Um what what grade? Give me a, give me your White Castle grade. B plus. I really like the freezer burger, the freezer freezer sliders. Those are delicious. They might be the best freezer slider on on the whole market. Yeah, they're really good. I like them a lot. As do I. They're they're and and it and it does bring to mind. It does hearken to the um, sort of marketplace they occupied before the Great Burger Boom. Sure. Right. We had here in Washington D.C. a place called Little Tavern that was really kind of a White Castle Ooh. knockoff. Same nice idea, name. small mini burgers, uh, and it was you know the Little Tavern actually um, was this, kind of this this uh, pitched green roof kind of vibe. It was with white, white and green. I mean, it had a very distinct look. Uh, but I, you know, they 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 were, um, if not a direct replication of the White Castle burger, a close uh, uh, sibling, and that was much easier for me to get than White Castle. But I really have an affinity for that small patty, a little diced onion, and a delicious smaller size potato roll. Yeah, that sounds great. I love Doesn't sliders it? Let's in general. Get some right now. Me Appet- too. Appetizer size food is great because you just feel like you can eat more. You know, like psych- psych- psychologically, you're like, well, I can have like four of these. They're all really small, even though it's like probably it, worse for you than if you had an actual burger. <laughs> undoubtedly true. And I, as a as a kid growing up, could never order less than a dozen. Of course, never, <laughs> <laughs> never ordering less than a dozen. Let's take that light note into the <laughs> on on into our lighter story there was a wedding at white castle it's beautiful uh white castle was a big part of the relationship between a man named adam mandel from new york and his wife who is weirdly not quite named in this article <laughs> but mrs mandel <laughs> mrs mandel nonetheless <laughs> The first time they visited uh, his hometown, he took her to White Castle. White Castle became such a big part of their relationship that after the two got engaged, they decided decided to stop for a bite to eat directly after. It was in that moment they realized they were going to include White Castle in their wedding plans. And White Castle had a contest last summer for couples who were hoping to win a rehearsal dinner and reception at a White Castle, plus a five-night honeymoon to Belgium. These two were the lucky winners, and they were married at the White Castle on the Vegas Strip last Sunday. Well, uh, the white. The, so that's another one, another White Castle for us to to visit. We will have to come up with the next uh, House of Carbs occasion in Vegas, and and in, in sh- make certain that we 
have White Castle on the list of places to visit. My very first question, which is the dumbest question of all yes. and is not the proper lead in. Why did White Castle choose Belgium as the place to send these folks on a honeymoon? It's a great question. Is there like a White Castle in Belgium or something? I mean, I, maybe these folks got to provide input on where they would like to go for their honeymoon. Maybe it was like an all expense paid five night honeymoon. But the way this reads, it suggests like White Castle had pre uh, ordained that the honeymoon would be in Belgium. And I'm trying to figure out any connection between Belgium and, and White Castle. You know, I really don't know. Um, but I will say food and wine informs me that this was the first there's White Castle's been marrying people for over 10 years. This is the first one to happen at the Vegas location. And by the way, her name is Whitney Wicker. I don't want her to go nameless. Yeah, Whitney Wicker Mandel. Whitney Wicker Mandel. She's here, people. Congratulations. <laughs> White Castle bride. Uh, yeah, I'm happy for her. And, you know, I'm going to probably have to go to Vegas this summer. So maybe I'll stop by, see what the scene is like. So Ooh, many field trips. Nah, that's it. That's right, because you go to, to Summer League every yeah, year. Yeah, exactly. The NBA Summer League. That is the best. T- you know, I went there for my um, bachelor party. Of course uh, you The did. year that I, I, was, I was betrothed. I don't, uh, I'm not surprised with, to hear that for a second. <laughs> I know. Well, and, and that was like a, a, near, a decade ago. And Vegas as a food town has gotten, I mean, it was a decent then, but it's so much better now. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like good now. Like straight up Incredible good. food town, Vegas. Yeah. I'll I might have you. to invite myself along for this trip. Okay, great. I'll see you there. I mean, it's Summer League. What's better than Summer League? Summer League is quite fun. It's a good environment to take in basketball and basketball celebrities, which is why I like it. Well, and you, you can rub shoulders. You can go have a conversation. Like, everybody's got their their chill on, right? Nobody's up, up with full uh, their guard on in terms of, you know, this uh, interlopers or, or media grabbers or anything. Everybody's just chill because it's the summer. Yeah, it's super chill. I love it. Thanks, House. It's great to talk to you as always. Thanks, Juliet. We will get it on again next week. Great. Talk to you then. There we go, my taste buds. Another outstanding edition of House of Carbs. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. We will be back again next week. One thing I want to call to your attention, all of our travels captured in the many outstanding conversations we've had over the last seven or eight months with all our guests, we're going to try and be populating our webpage. So at theringer.com, House of Carbs has its own page there. We're going to start creating links so you can see, my hungry homies, all the places we've been and the things that we recommend. And that will be your source for when you're traveling abroad Has the House of Carbs talked about my city, this city that I'm going to? Check us out there and the places we've been, the wonderful food we've enjoyed, the restaurants we recommend. All of it will be right there. Just keep an eye on it. This is a work in progress. It's not all going to be done in one fell swoop. But we greatly appreciate all of your input, all the outstanding belly sourcing. And we will be back again next week. But until then, my hungry homies, let's stay hungry out there. (laughs) 